my younger days, we attended a church and we moved from Virginia. My father had passed away. We moved to Berkeley, California. And we went to Westbury Bible Church. And Westbury Bible Church was a wonderful church for a family that had just gone through the loss with my mother with four kids and made this dramatic move across country. I won't get into the details of all that except to say we're in Berkeley, California, and we went to Westbury Bible Church, and it was a wonderful church. And every Sunday night, they would have a testimony time in the evening service. And it usually went like this. After a brief devotional time, the pastor would get up and give a devotional, and then there'd be a time of prayer. And then people were given the opportunity to share something that God was presently doing or had done for them in their lives that week or whenever. And I would hear some wonderful stories of God's work in people's lives. On a side note, it's interesting that the Mormon church still practices that. If you go to most Mormon churches, they still have a time they call testimony time. And of course, part of their testimony time is you give your testimony that you know that Joseph Smith is the prophet of God and, and that whole thing that goes with it, which of course I don't believe, but they do it nonetheless. And during those testimony times in California, it seemed that at some point, some of those sharing would see the need to outdo each other. I mean, you give a testimony, the next person, they kind of have to outdo it a little bit. You know, you, you can't just say something that's kind of along the same vein. It's got to be better, almost as if it were a competition, so to speak. And they often began with how bad they were before Christ and how wonderful and flawless their life was after Christ. And that was the theme that seemed to repeat throughout most of the testimonies. And they followed the three-point outline. Before salvation, I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. I was sexually promiscuous. I was depressed. I was poor. I was materialistic. I was atheist, whatever it is. But it was really bad. And then Jesus saved me. He changed my heart. And then now I'm drug-free, alcohol-free, married to an unstable relationship, joyful, good job, love Jesus, living a fulfilled, wonderful life. Wow. Some great testimonies. And many of them were true. I, on the other hand, had been raised in a believing home, and the more my faith was tested, the stronger it became. I don't remember I was bad and sinful. Of course I was, because we all are, but I was an alcoholic. Certainly was promiscuous at eight years old. Uh, it's hard to be that way at that t stage of life anyway. But I also seemed to struggle daily, like most people. And while trusting God, I did not find the drama and the power these other people seemed to have. It's like, where's this big, wonderful, life-changing experience that they seem to be having, and I haven't had it? My life is relatively boring in comparison. For some, their change was dramatic and visible. Yet for me, I could only ask, why hasn't God some, done some dramatic thing in my life? I had a boring testimony. I was born in a Christian home. I always believed in Jesus. I still do. I live my life for him. And yes, I was a sinner saved by grace, and I'm reminded of that daily, constantly. But I don't have all the dramatic story to share with it. Today, we're going to focus on a theme that has come up before in the book of Ephesians, experiencing God's power. And one thing throughout Ephesians is identity, knowing who you are in Christ. Another theme is unity, understanding the church is and how we to relate to one another in unity. Another recurring theme in the book is power, how to live in God's strength. A couple weeks ago, that is in the Getting Connected message that I preached on that you all remember so clearly, and probably can quote it quite vividly, but I won't have you do that. 
In chapter 1, basically we touched on the theme of connecting God's power. In chapter 1, Paul says we will know who Christ is. And we, in verses 18, he says we will know who we are in Christ. And thirdly, is that we, verse 19, it says we will experience in power. That theme seems to run throughout the book. He refers to God's incomparable great power for us who believe the power that is like the working of his mighty strength. Now in this single verse, Paul makes four different, uses four different words for power. For us, I'm sure a sermon could be preached on each one. Take each of those words, preach a sermon. But the main idea, however, is that God's power is absolute and it's available to you. And some might say, I've heard that all my life, so where is it? I've never experienced it. My life is one flop after another, one lapse after another, one failure after another. If God's power is out there available for the benefit of his people, where is it? How do I get it? Today's text zeroes in on that question. How do you experience God's power? So let's look at Ephesians 4, 14 to 21 that gives us clarity about that. It says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep and high and deep the love of Christ is and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. The passage addresses the question, how do you experience God's power? And I want to look at three different things that we find our answer to. First of all, God's greatest resource is love. Notice verse 16. I pray from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you a mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. The resources that he have of which love is one as he identifies here. Paul uses the phrase glorious and unlimited resources. Think about that for a moment. God has it all. God owns it all. As Psalm 50 says, all the animals of the forest, the cattle on a thousand hills, every bird of the mountain, he says, all the world is mine and everything in it. He can give you anything he wants. God can give you anything he wants. He can give you money, possessions, prestige, success, a life of privilege. He can give you anything he wants to give you. And Paul makes it clear throughout the book of Ephesians that God wants to give you the very best. That's what his goal for you is. So what does he choose to give you? Look at verse 18. And you may have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. He can give you anything. And he wants to give you, most of all, the ability to know his love. Love is God's greatest resource. He takes love so seriously that he defines himself by it. The Bible says God is love. To experience the fullness of God in your life, which includes experience his power at work within you, you need to begin to develop at least an inkling of the awesomeness of his love. How deep it is. How rich it is. I say it this way because in this lifetime, 
we will only at most scratch the surface of understanding God's love. We will never fully comprehend it and we'll spend the rest of eternity trying to grasp it. As Paul says in verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ. Though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. We're told it's love is beyond comprehension. We will never fully understand it, but we can at least begin to understand it. And I think we spend our whole lifetime on a quest to understand what God's love is, the magnitude of it. Here's something that will help. August Hare once said, I'm paraphrasing here, love flows downward. The love of parents for their children has always been far more powerful than that of their children for their parents. In the same way, no man could ever love God with more than one one thousandth of the love that God has given us. Think of your children. Think of how totally dependent they are, or at least one time they were on you. How vulnerable and how helpless, how fragile, and how you wanted to do be everything in their world for them. And there were times when you had to say no, and they didn't understand. There were times when you had to correct them, and they did not want to be corrected. And there were times, if you're like me, you thought, if you just understood how much I love you, you wouldn't question why I think it's so important that you take the garbage out. We don't grasp God's love. Before coming here, Vaughn and I lived within walking distance of the Pacific Ocean. And if I were to grab a cup... And I was to take it to the ocean and dip the cup in the ocean until it was full. I could say, I have the ocean in my cup. And I would only be partially right in that I only have a minuscule amount in that cup. In a similar way, God's love is far greater than our finite minds can ever fully appreciate. The ocean of God's love can never be grasped with the cup of our minds. God loves you far more than any parent could love a child. As Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Paul's prayer is that you will grasp it. God's love is our greatest resource. We have to begin with there. We have to focus on that. There's a second response to our question, how do you experience God's power in your life? And is this, God's love is your life. You see, good works without love lead to disillusionment. When I was in college, I worked with a church, church's youth group and young adult group. And though it was overall a valuable experience, I had the feeling throughout the summer that there was a missing element in the ministry related to the work I was doing. I was working hard, I was very busy with them. The leadership of this church took discipline seriously to them. Proof of spirituality was found in consistency, daily Bible study, daily prayer, witnessing or at least one person a day, memorizing at least two Bible verses a week per week. It involved a lot of work, it involved a weekly one-on-one discipleship relationship, and so on and so on and so on. And this attitude spilled into other areas. And it's not, none of these things were not bad. They were all good things. And it was taught implicitly, and not, if not explicitly, that other proofs of spirituality include how clean you kept your house or your car, or how well you man- maintained your physical appearance and your weight, and how sharp your organizational skills were. And since the pastor had given up soft drinks years before, it was considered a little less than godly indulgent to indulge in Dr. Pepper. Now, most of these things you really can't argue with. Yes, you should strive for consistency. And you've heard countless times how crucial daily prayer and Bible study are to a dynamic spiritual life. 
Yes, as a person, you should keep your house clean and your yard mowed and your life organized and all these things are good and I did as well as most people in practicing those things. And then I sent, but I, and yet I sensed something was missing. I was serving God and I was doing work that I love, but I had this nagging feeling that somehow we weren't doing enough. And the impulse is to try harder. You see, we weren't really fulfilling the work of the church, and I would think of other types of groups such as grassroots political task force or a winning sports team or successful business and groups that were driven by hard work, discipline, and consistency and organization. I would think the only difference between them and us is the name on the signs, and yet something was missing. Later, back at school, I found the missing element. I was reading from the book of Philippians a book I had memorized back in those days. Don't remember much of it now other than bits and pieces of it. Where Paul writes, I pray that your love for each other will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding. See, good doctrine without love leads to arrogance and harshness. Though there is no empirical evidence to support this, I'm certain that when I read that verse, a little light bulb appeared over my head, if such a thing really happened. So I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think it was Eureka. Oh yeah, aha. I had that, what 12 steppers called the moment of clarity, or C.S. Lewis calls the aha moment. And I suddenly realized that in the midst of all my good works and sound doctrine throughout the course of the summer, the missing element of my ministry was love. Good old-fashioned love. This concept that I come to equate with liberalism and easy believism was, I discovered, just as fundamental to the doctrine as the doctrine of the virgin birth. We are called to love one another. You see, love for God and others is what makes Christianity unique. Do you know what makes sets it apart? Do you know what separates us from all the other religions and organizations in the world? The answer is love. Without love, we're just robots. We're just servants, and that's all we are. We're organized, disciplined robots, and love puts us in a league of our own, and it is the best thing that we have to offer the world. It was a great revelation for me because much of my early years focused on critiquing and judging others based on what they knew academically or how well they performed certain standards. Discipline, consistency, and organizational skills are great to have, And I'm not saying otherwise, but I want you to realize it's no match for God's love. Given a choice between a staff member that is organized and having a staff member that loves people, I'll choose the one who loves people every single time. And that is how Per Bailey said it. What the world really needs is more love and less paperwork. You see, the Christian life is a life of love. Love should penetrate every aspect of our life. Paul says in verse 17 and 19, May your roots grow deep down into the soil of God's marvelous love. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. Rooted in love. Understanding his love. Experience his love. The goal of the Christian is to be immersed in God's love. How does it happen? The key is found in two Latin words. Mediatio and contemplation. Meditation and contemplation. 
Meditation is thinking in a specific direction. Contemplation is thinking or on extended duration. That's how you get immersed in God's love. Think about it intensely and think about it extensively. Do you know how I do this? In my quiet time, I open my Bible to a verse that reaffirms God's love for us. And as I read it, I pray, God, make these words real to me. And I ask myself, how would knowing that I am loved by God affect what I think about myself or what I say about myself? How would it affect the way I respond to insults or to criticisms? And how would it affect my need for recognition or, or approval? How would it affect my life's work? And then I pray, Lord, make your love real to me. Of all the things I crave the most, it's to know God's love. And then I think about times that I experience a special touch of God's love through his mercy, through a special blessing or through the ministry of one of his people. I say, Lord, help me to know always that what I have known in the best moments of my life that I am your beloved child. This is a meditation. This is meditation and contemplation. It's not a snappy 60-second formula. It's a lifetime process. It's something we develop and work over our lifetime. And the longer we meditate on this love, the deeper we're rooted, the better we understand it, and the more we experience it. And the more peace we find, no matter what is going on around us. There's a third response to our question, how do you experience God's power in your life? And it's this. Living in God's love is the key to power. To the extent that we understand his love, we experience his power in our lives. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 19, as we've read already. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. And then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What kind of power are we talking about here? The most important kind. Power over sin. Power over weakness. Power over fear, power over shame, power over despair, power over rage, power over lust, power over greed, power over pride, power over doubt, power over guilt. Those are the kinds of power that really matter. Not the power that can annihilate, destroy, but the power that gets us through life and builds us up. This love is greater than the things that beat us down. The things I just quoted are things that make our life miserable. We don't have to live under their tyranny any longer. God's promise is his power. It's available to you. It's available to all of us. To receive his power, you have to yield to his love. The famous preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said this, He is truly great in power who has power over himself. And if you want to experience power over yourself, power over your emotions, power over your circumstances, there are two ways you can go about it. You can try the boot camp approach, discipline, discipline, discipline. Or you can try the biblical approach, love, love, love. And guess which one really works? Note verse 20. Now glory be to God. By his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever dare or to, to hope or ask. Do you experience the power of God? If not, then get immersed in the love of God. Pray about it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Contemplate on it. Believe it. Receive it. And when you know his love, you'll experience his power. His power is at work within you. It will revolutionize your life. And as he says in verse 20, may he be given glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen. This morning we looked at the question, 
how do I experience God's power in my life? In this passage, we looked at Paul where he makes the answer clear. We must get immersed in the love of God. While my testimony in my early years growing up was not as dramatic as many, I have since learned that all of our stories of God's power in our life are different, but the constant theme is God's love. No matter where we are in our journey, no matter where you are in your Christian life, we must constantly be learning the love of God. One of the greatest things every person needs in their life is for someone to love them unconditionally. We crave for it. We crave for someone who knows the deep secrets of our life with all of its weakness and shortcomings and loves us anyway. Maybe you've not found that in a parent or a spouse or a friend and you feel lonely and empty and fearful because you think if this person really knew the true me, they would despise me. And that's true of most of us. And maybe you have a view of God that keeps him simply as a judge and cannot love you because of your many flaws. And the reality is that God knows you better than you know yourself and he still loves you and he still wants your best. Don't obsess with your weaknesses and your inadequacies. Focus on how God loves and accepts you fully in spite of these things. As Romans 5.12 says, But God demonstrates his love toward us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. When we're driven by God's love, the motivation to love him, it's a natural outgrowth. And it transforms us. Gregory Boyle retells the story of a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo. Rigo was getting ready for a special worship service for incarcerated youth when Boyle casually asked if Rigo's father would be coming, and the following is a summary of his conversation. I'm not quoting from the book. No, he says, he's a heroin addict, and I've never been in my life. Used to always beat me. I think I was in fourth grade, he began. I came home, sent home in the middle of the day, and when I got home, my dad says, why did they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, if I tell you, promise me you won't hit me. And he just said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. And Rigo began to cry. And in a moment, he started wailing and rocking back and forth. And Boyle put his arm around him until he slowed, slowly calmed down. And when Rigo could finally speak again, he spoke quietly, still in a state of shock. He beat me with a pipe. With a pipe. And after Rigo composed himself... Boyle asked about his mom. And Rigo pointed to a small woman and said, that's her over there, and there's no one like her. And then Rigo paused and said, I've been locked up for a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday, and you know how many buses she has to take every Sunday to see me? Rigo started sobbing with the same veracity as before. And after catching his breath, he gasped through the sobs, seven buses. She takes seven buses. Imagine. Boyle completed his story with an analogy. God is revealed in the person of Jesus, loves us like Rigo's mother, loved her son, with commitment, steadfastness, and sacrifice. And according to Boyle, we have a God who takes seven buses just to arrive at us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, his birth on Christmas morning, his meals with sinners, his healing of the sick, his death on the cross for our sins, he showed us the heart of God. 
the God who will take a journey of love to find us and to save us. And there's power in that.